Hey there, welcome to the Kitchen Sink Podcast. I'm Camille, and this is the podcast for women that want to create a dream kitchen without stress and costing a fortune. If you like no fluff, tell it like it is remodeling advice from a cabinet maker with over 30 years experience, then you are in the right place. I am so glad you're here. Let's dive in. everybody. Thank you so much for coming back for day three of Electrical Week. I've got my husband here, my hubby here, Larry Finan. Uh, hey, babe, say hi to everybody again. Hey, baby. Hey, ladies. Happy to be so, back with the show. Yeah. So we're going to talk about um, kind of a, the big topic today, the big juicy topic, which is, you know, how to basically plan a kitchen remodel from an electrical standpoint, all the things that you need to tr- take into consideration, all the things that you want to be thinking about. And we're going to try to make this not sound super overwhelming. Um, Remember, inside our program, we can help you with this stuff. We can answer questions. Um, So, you know, part of having a kitchen coach is having some help to solve some of these issues and think through this process. Okay, so I'm just going to list kind of the things that I think of when I'm thinking of planning a kitchen remodel. Larry's going to fill in some things. And then we're going to talk about, they're not really in any order to begin with. But then we're going to talk about kind of the three biggest things that we think are the most important things when planning it. All right. So I've got um, under cabinet lights, can lights, meaning your main, you know, uh, recess lighting, fixing the basic lighting issues in a kitchen, um, your refrigerator, dishwasher appliances, your island outlets, um, upgrading your GFCIs, which we've already covered in episode two, um, and maybe pendant lights or some sort of specialty lighting. So that's what I have on my list, babe. What do you have on your list? Uh, So on my list, I've got uh, microwaves, whether you're going to have them built in or whether they're going to be sitting on the countertop. Uh, I have, as you mentioned earlier in the big big list of things, stoves. Uh, If you're going to go from an electric stove to a gas stove or go from a gas stove to electric, and uh, planning a refrigerator, as we kind of mentioned back during, um, I believe it was episode one, we talked about that. Uh, whether you're going to go with a big Thermador, or whether you're going to go with one of the big, uh, the Sub-Zeros, or whether you're going to go with a Mealy, but something that has to have a dedicated circuit in it, versus just going and buying a regular, you know, a normal size refrigerator. Yeah. Even though we, just to be clear, we always think a refrigerator should be on a dedicated circuit. Completely agree with that. For us, any refrigerator. Okay, so let's just go down the list. I'm going to start with can lights because to me, this makes the biggest uh, difference in a kitchen. I, I don't think there's ever been a single kitchen that we've remodeled that we have not completely redone the lighting. It's the number one best thing you can do for $1,200, $1,500, $2,000, you know, up to $3,000. It is the best several thousand dollars, I think, pound for pound. It gives you the biggest impact. Um, and so it's just like a non-negotiable for me. So we're going to talk a little bit about can lights and uh, otherwise known as recess lights and bring up some little known facts that you guys may not know. And so I'm going to I'm going to lead in with um, the fact that did did you know, listener, that a regular uh, recess light might be as little as 15 watts. And so you can put in four to five or six can lights, recess lights, the right ones for the same amount of power that's coming in as a double, like an old style 
uh, lighting fixture that maybe just has two 60 watt bulbs in it. Right. So I think that's pretty fascinating. Like you think, oh, upgrading is going to like, you have to pull more power in when actually you're able to use the power that's already usually coming to that single light in a much better way. So babe, do you want to talk a little bit about that and, and just add to that, whatever you can. Uh, yeah. So I cannot stress how much value bringing in the can lights and swapping out that single fixture. If your home was built like before the 1990s, you're almost guaranteed to have a single fixture uh, light, or you'll have those ugly fluorescent lights in a recessed uh, in a recessed box that serve absolutely barely any purpose of providing lighting. But by just changing things, those things out, you get so much value by using the same amount of power that you would have in a two bulb circuit or a two bulb light fixture, which you just mentioned, by adding four to six can lights and I can't even imagine spending, you know, $10,000, $20,000 on a kitchen and not changing out the light fixtures and doing something that's going to make that make your brand new kitchen stand out like an art piece. Yeah. Can you talk about some of the things that you've seen where people try to reuse, let's say they have some can lights in there, but they're not spaced correctly. So the lighting isn't very good still. And then they try to quote unquote upgrade their lights by just putting in new bulbs. Can you talk about why you can't just put a new bulb in? Yeah. An older style, like what can actually happen? Well, that's this is actually kind of a three-part thing. Uh, the first thing is, is that when you have a when you have an old kitchen and you have the old lighting in there with the old cans, those old cans are spaced were probably if it's a newer home, they were they were spaced around the rafters. If it's an older home, then they were fit as close to the rafters as possible to get the spacing out. Um the new can lights that are out today, you can actually you can actually remove the sheetrock right underneath the rafter, and but because the new can lights are so thin, they're self-contained, you don't need to have a can in there anymore. So you can space your lighting wherever you need to put it. Um, and this has been an amazing, uh, this has been actually pretty amazing as far as technology, because the way I used to have to do can lights back when we were doing houses in, you know, in the early 2000s, there was always the challenge of where am I going to place the lighting so we get the most effect out of it, but at the same time, how the how are the rafters going to get in the way in the spacing? Or if you had a recessed box that we removed um, for the fluorescent lighting, I always had to work around that and also the supporting uh, framing for that. And it always caused this major challenge. It took the job like five times as long as it normally should have needed to do. Whereas today, I can just close that box up and I can go ahead and cut the sheetrock and I put those brand new can lights or the plan new recessed lighting we're using today right up against the rafters and everything fits perfectly. Yeah. So when, so you guys, when we're using the word can lights, it's kind of just like a generic term for the, the older style recess lights had an actual can that was almost, I don't know, eight inches tall, 10 inches tall, and it went up inside of your ceiling. So if there was a duct or a, or a wood going across, like a beam going across or water or power, you couldn't put the quote unquote can there because it was took up too much space. Right. Now they, we, they have these really thin, they're like a, like a half of an inch thick. And they're basically the same thickness as your sheetrock. So you don't have to cut into a beam or move a light over if it falls on a beam or water or electric. So that's what Larry's referring to. It's like, we still call them can lights, even though technically that's an older way of doing it. Um, and so we'll post we'll post a link, a picture of the actual lights that we use, these very slim, thin lights that were great because they really make it so you can actually put those quote unquote can lights, recess lights exactly where it's aesthetically pleasing. Um, and you get 
this really good even light coverage. Um, we can actually talk about that a little bit, like the basic spacing of how we do that, the measurements between cans, um, so that we get this even arc of light all the way throughout the whole kitchen. Do you want to talk about kind of the range between the between each light? Yeah. So when I so just to kind of slip back a little bit um, from this kind of. Moving forward, when we talk about the lighting, the recess lighting, I'll, I'll use the term wafer lights because that's really what they look like is they look like little wafers. They're thin. They're super thin. You don't have to have a cannon. And they fit flush to the ceiling. Uh, I am a firm believer in using lights with the highest amount of lumens possible. And lumens is the amount of power or the amount of lighting that's produced by that particular unit. Um the ones that I currently use are around 1100 lumens. Uh, so to give you an idea, uh, most of your bulbs, like a regular light bulb that's in a in one of those uh, two bulb fixtures, that may produce 300 lumens, 200 lumens. So it's always dark and dim. Yep. Whereas, an, whereas an 1100 lumen light is like produces a ton of light and it really brightens everything up. Uh, yeah, and, and you're in, using five or six or eight of them in a kitchen. Right. So it's normally a dramatic difference. Exactly. And normally I'm doing, depending on the size of the kitchen, like if I'm in a, in a smaller kitchen, let's, let's say it's like a, an eight by eight or an eight by six uh, for the floor space between cabinets, I'll normally use like four to four, use normally four to six lights. And that just really depends on what the spacing is going to be. Um, if we don't have anything on the ends of the kitchens, it'll normally be like six of those. And I'll, it'll probably be like, I'll use the four inch size so that they're not overwhelming. Uh, spacing the lights, I try not to bring the lights any closer together than four, than 48 inches or four feet from center to center. And the reason for that is, is it doesn't matter really what size the wafer light is in diameter. Uh, it starts to get really crowded and then it just, it becomes just kind of a waste of money and a waste of, a waste of lighting, uh, when you do that. Uh, whereas like our kitchen that we have, um, we put in eight for ours. And our spacing in our kitchen was about 53 inches between lights for yeah. four, for a run of four down each side. But we also have a really tall ceiling and it's an yeah. angle. It's like a vaulted cathedral ceiling. So we, and we have a lot of natural light in that kitchen anyways, we have windows all the way around. So it really does depend on the, each individual space. But I also know that sometimes putting them too far apart is not good either. Cause then you have breaks in the cone, the light fixtures. So you have like, pools of light, whereas we want this nice, even overall light in the kitchen. You don't want to see like shadows anywhere in the kitchen, but you, you know what I mean? So there's like an optimal layout of that. Yeah. Um, so you brought up lumens. So now let's talk about Kelvins because uh, you and I talk about lumens and Kelvins all the time. <laughs> so what's the difference between a Kelvin then and a lumen? So a Kelvin is the warmth of the light. Um, a good example is is that if you've ever been in a hospital um, or ever been in like a an office building where it's like just this super stark grayish white light, that yeah. would be like that would be like on the Kelvin rating that would be like a three like a thirty two hundred to four thousand Kelvin. Yeah, it makes um, you look horrible. Makes everybody horrible. look horrible. <laughs> honestly, that is like the worst light. There, there, yeah, there are people that would disagree with me, but if you have a white kitchen and you're running a thirty five hundred or four thousand Kelvin yeah. in there. It's it's just going to make your cabinet your cabinets look like shit. <laughs> yeah, they look they look cheap. They look too stark. Yeah, there's no warmth at all. Like it just doesn't look. It's actually creates like an emotional response where it just feels 
cold and irritating, like honestly. And, yes. and what we go for is a warmer color temperature, warmer Kelvin. And so what's the temperature that we usually go for in our uh, wafer lights? Uh, every one of our lights that I do, which the new lights that we're using now, the new wafer lights we're using now are actually adjustable. I can set them from 2,700 to 4,000 Kelvin, mm -hmm. but I preset everything to 2,700 uh, yeah. because that is like literally, the, in my opinion, that's the perfect warmth level for a kitchen. And that's based on the hundreds of kitchens you and I have done together. Yeah. Okay. So that's a lumen and a Kelvin. Okay, so that's can lights. We're now, you know, supporting wafer lights is what we're going to call them. We'll we'll put a picture in the show notes or in the in the blog post for this. Um, let's talk about um, island outlets a little bit, right? Like, what are some of the things that people need might need to think about when they're, you know, a lot of our customers are putting in islands, and what are some of the things to think about with um, island outlets? So the first thing you got to think about with the island outlets is how big is the overhang of your countertop going to be. Uh, because if your countertop's over 12 inches on one side, um, by the electrical code, you're not supposed to put any outlets on the side with the overhang. Um, but you do put outlets on each end of the island. And if your island is over six feet, you need to have an outlet on each end so that you can do appliances. Uh, the island also has to have a GFCI to protect it. One of the challenges that you may run into is if your home has never had an island in it and you're planning on putting an island in, you may have to actually cut the concrete to bring in the electrical from um, the wall where the power is currently running for your appliance circuit and run your electrical underneath and up. But that may also be defined by city code because some city codes will just grandfather the fact that you never had an island in your house uh, and they may not require you to do that. So those are good things to check on before um, just saying, oh my God, now I got to cut concrete. Yeah. But you well, may not have to do that. Yeah. And that's if you have a concrete foundation. Right. Um, one of the things that I always like to see, that we always do pretty much standard now is the outlets that have USB ports in them. So we rarely will just put a regular island, a regular outlet in. We have multiple, uh, multiple outlets around the kitchen and definitely in the island with that has the USB plug as part of the plug, it's like integrated. So you can plug in your laptop, you can plug in your iPhones, right? Like most people are charging those uh, electronic devices or using them inside the kitchen. The kitchen has become like another workstation. So, um, you know, if you don't know about them, a lot of people know about them, but they used to be kind of rare. Like when we started doing it like seven years ago, eight years ago, like nobody knew that was even possible. So if you've never seen them before, they are possible and they're amazing. And it makes it so you don't have to have that little extra block, that iPhone block that you have to plug the USB port in the back of. You just plug your cord directly into the outlet. So that's sort of my suggestion. Um, and actually, actually okay. our jobs, the jobs that you and I do, that's that's standard. That's any, standard. Any yeah. job you and I do, it's uh, I already I already have one plan to be installed wherever you need it most. Yeah, and we usually have a couple. Um, the other thing that I get asked a lot is like outlet drawers, and so um, yes, you can do outlet drawers. I personally think it's a huge waste of money and time and expense. Um, and the reason is that most people leave their phones on their countertop, and so if you put it in a drawer, you're constantly checking the drawer to see if you got a message or an email. So it kind of defeats the purpose. And um, they are expensive to do, they are possible, but you waste an entire top drawer that I think is way too valuable to be used in other ways. And the reality is kind of like appliance garages, you end up, if you're using that thing repeatedly, it's out all the time anyway. So my solution to that is what we just talked about. You have an outlet that has a plug in it that you can just plug your phone in. 
and your phone is sits out on the countertop at one end or the other, um, that tends to be the the simplest and easiest way. Yeah, right, I'll, so do, I'll do you. I'll do you one better on it. If you're asking to have an outlet drawer, I'll be the first person to try to talk you out of it. And the reason why is I don't want to call back because after multiple uses, your wires are starting to come loose on the back of the outlet. And then you're asking me to come in and have you clean out your cabinet so I can get in there and fix something that's just a matter of that's that's a problem that's been created because you continue to use the outlet drawer. Ah, so that's another, yeah, they're just not, they're a great kind of, they're a great idea, idea in theory like a lot of kind of fancy gadgets and kitchens, but when you actually start working with it and using it, it's like corner pullouts. They just don't work in reality when you're using something frequently, right? So um, just save your money for something that actually works. Yeah, like buy a USB outlet. Buy <laughs> a USB outlet. Um, okay, so let's talk about upgrading GFCI. Um, so, you know, whether you have one or none or you need to add more, um, that's kind of a typical thing that we would do is we would replace outlets, we'd replace broken outlets, we would add in a GFCI if they if it was an older house and they didn't have one before, but it but it is a grounded house, right? Um, that's a pretty common thing. Do, I think we replace outlet outlets like I'd say sixty percent of the time, right? Like oh, no. the countertop we, it's, outlets. It's, it's higher. It, yeah, it is, is higher. It? Yeah. yeah. We're, we're probably, unless the house is a modern house that was recently built within the last five to 10 years, you and I replace the outlets on every job. Um, we just we just build that into the electrical bid. And yeah, they're usually oh, either filthy or dirty or broken. They look nasty. They look yeah. nasty, but a lot of times they're not working very properly. And by the time you have to take it in and out for the tile backsplash and lots of other things, right? It's just simpler just to put a nice, clean one back. This, that we know goes, was installed correctly. Right. And this just goes back to what you and I have talked about before. There's there's absolutely no reason to spend the kind of money you're going to spend in, in remodeling your entire kitchen and not spend an extra five or $600 replacing all of your outlets, your GFCIs and your switches. It's just, <laughs> you know, the number one detractor. Oh, great. There's a dirty outlet behind my, that everybody can see when they're in here, in here hanging out. Great kitchen, yeah. but we miss that one little detail that's obvious to everyone. It's super obvious. Yeah. Yeah. And we're not just doing them because they're dirty and filthy. They always are. But it's also just because they get worn out, like we've already covered, right? Electricity creates movement and friction. So wires shift. It's mm -hmm. like that chance for you to do it correctly, make sure they're really secure for the next 20 years, right? Like it's a way of doing that. And a lot of times our, they're, they're broken. They're not working anymore. Um, the GFCIs don't work. The buttons don't work. They're crusted with oil and grease and food. And like, it's a way of safeguarding so that you know for sure that the electrical is correct in the house, right? Um, okay, so that's upgrading GFCIs. Um, let's talk about under cabinet lights. Oh my gosh, how many times do we talk about under cabinet lights? So I'm going to talk about the way, the two ways. I'm going to talk about how we do it, and I'm going to talk about kind of how the industry does it. So we, um, because Larry and I don't like looking at the bar lights that that are visible, or the three quarter inch thick bar lights that go up in the back underneath your cabinets. We personally just aesthetically don't like the, that look. And so we use a product called um, Hafeli, which is a very thin, I mean, it's almost like the thickness of a piece of tape. And it has these little LEDs literally embedded. The electronics are embedded in that tape. And that tape gets stuck on the underside, the front underside edge of the cabinet. So it's invisible. It's basically invisible. It's so thin. 
That's what the way that we like doing our under cabinet lights. If there's a budget for it, um, it is pricier because each light, each side run, wherever, if you have a left and right of the sink and they're not connected, you have to have a little transformer uh, that basically powers that strip of light in each side of the cabinets, right? Now, if you have one long run of cabinets and they're all connected, we can put one transformer in that. Um, but for us, it's like maybe $1,000, right, babe? Kind of for an average kitchen between labor and the transformers and the tape. Yeah, that's 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 if yeah. we have to run. Um, so that's if we have to put in a circuit for it, if there wasn't already an existing circuit for the lights and we have to put a new one in with a switch. Um, that covers up to three three of the little step down transformers, and uh, and a roll of tape and a specialty switch. So yeah, so but it's not two hundred dollars. It's it's not a hundred dollars, right? So if you don't have, if you kind of thought of the under cabinet lights last, like as your last resort, and you're like, oh, I'd really wanted to have under cabinet lights. Believe it or not, that actually has to be planned first because the traditional way, the, the like old school way of doing it is you just run a circuit in, you run a, a cord in, and it gets hardwired, meaning it's just the wires are wired into the back of these long bar lights. And those bar lights are very inexpensive, right? They're super cheap. And so most kitchens have some, some power brought in for that. The problem is that it's really visible. And so, but if you only have like what, three or $400 maybe with the electrician, then that's what your electrician is going to suggest. So that's sort of the range of it. Um, and you can put a trim piece on the front. That's called a light rail. The light rail is that decorative board, that decorative little piece of trim on the front edge of your cabinet that basically blocks your view of the bar light up in the back. So that's one solution, but then you still have to buy the bar light and you still have to pay your, you know, your contractor carpenter to install it. So for us, the kind of more sleek way is to do those Hafeli lights, but you need to pre-plan and make sure that after you pull out your old lights, your old um, cabinets, that, that the new electrician actually wires it with the, for those transformers. Um, uh, and and, they, I and also like them because they have a motion switch. That's what I like them. Yeah, just, just, to, add on, just to add on to that too, um, it's really important that your electrician pays attention to where your different banks of cabinets are going to be. So a good example of this is if you have a run that's split, a run of cabinets that's split by, say, a main window in front of the sink, you're not going to be able to bridge your wiring across that. So you're probably going to have to bring in a second set. You're going to have to bring in another little set of wiring to drop it to the other side of that, um, of the, to the drop to the other side of that sink. So you can go ahead and put in another transformer to run another set of your under cabinet lights. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is this is probably one of the more we spend a little bit more time planning out our, our layouts for all of our under cabinet lights because of those things. Um, you may have a run of cabinets that runs the entire length on one side that's got a fridge cabinet. So we'll just drop the we'll drop the electrical on the back side of the fridge cabinet and then just plug in the one transformer and take care of that. But then you have to plan for something like that where there's two, three different banks of switches. So they have one controlling switch somewhere on the wall. So you can turn the power on. So all three of them come on at the same time. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's truly like you really want to, this is the one thing that's kind of impossible to do after the fact, right? So you really do want to make sure that if you want under cabinet lights and you want to use the ones that we're talking about, you need, and you have the budget for it, you need to tell your electrician ahead of time before he does all the electrical upgrades, because he may have to bring in a new circuit or rewire, remove stuff around before the sheetrock and texture happens. You can't do that after the fact. 
right? Like, like you can't, you can't put that wiring in place after the cabinets are installed, the new cabinets. So that's like a really uh, important thing, I think. And um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, I think what we have to say about can lights. Yeah. Actually any lighting in the house, if your house is a two-story home, you need to plan for spending a little bit extra money. And the reason for that is, is that in a single story home, if you have access to the attic space above the kitchen, mm-hmm. it's, you can bring the wiring in that you need to bring in for your dedicated circuits that we talk about, you know, I've talked about in the last two episodes now uh, for like, if you're bringing a dedicated circuit for the fridge, new dedicated circuit for the stove, new dedicated circuit for a microwave, maybe adding circuits because you didn't have enough due to the age of the house in a single story home. That's not really a bit as, it's it's a challenge, but it's not a it's not a major deal. Whereas mm-hmm. in a two story home, it can be a major deal because you're gonna have to open the sheetrock, and in some cases you're gonna have to open the sheetrock all the way back to the garage so you can get to wherever the panel is, so yeah. you can bring in that new those new circuits, and that adds to the cost. Right. Yeah, and you just want to know you really want to plan that ahead of time, or at least have the conversation so you're not disappointed later when you're like, oh, I really wanted enter cabinet lights, but I didn't tell anybody. And you're like, well, the new cabinets are already installed. Like, there's no real way to do that now. You know what I mean? Outside of like, you know, they make ones that are like remote access and that you have to go and actually physically turn on, right? So they make sort of aftermarket variations of that. But if you want that true, like seamless where you walk in and you just wave your hand under one side of the cabinets and all your under cabinet lights come on and it's like motion sensitive, that needs to be, that's what I have in my house. So that needs to be planned ahead of time. Like, so, all right. So that is the inner cabinet lights. Um, Okay. So let's talk about like our three big things now. And that would be in order, I would say what to do with the new fridge, dishwasher and garbage disposal, the stove, whether that's going from a cooktop to a freestanding electric to a gas stove, maybe a big double wall oven, something to do with the wall oven or the the stove. And then the last would be dishwasher, would be microwaves, right? So let's go through those three big categories of the things that you and I spend probably the most time pre-planning and thinking through before we ever cut sheetrock, right? So we always uh, need to know what the refrigerator is. Even if it hasn't been purchased, we need to know what the model that they're going to buy is so that you can calculate the power. And typically you and I will always want the refrigerator to be on its own dedicated circuit. So, so that it's never interrupted power from something else going on. And then the dishwasher and the garbage disposal is usually on its own dedicated circuit, right? So do you want to talk a little more about fridges, dishwashers, and um, garbage disposals? Right. So fridges, uh, the first question that Camille and I normally ask a customer is, are you planning to move your fridge in in your design planning? Because if your fridge is say, let's just say that your fridge is on one side of the kitchen, you're planning on removing that wall and it needs to go to another side of the kitchen. That's going to account for moving your electrical. And in this case, this is going to be the impetus of bringing in a dedicated circuit for it all the way over there, whether it's a standard fridge or whether it's going to be one of the big high specialty sub zeros or Mm -hmm. uh, one of the big ones that requires its own dedicated circuit. You're going to need to plan to move your water line to, to supply that fridge. And then you're going to need to make sure that the space identified correctly on that layouts, which again, this is the part that Camille and the kitchen coach team do for you. Uh, and then you'll put in your fridge, but you know, you just moved the fridge from one side of the house to the other. And that's a, that's a major thing you got to take in consideration. 
Uh, and that needs to be planned before you even start the demo on the house. Yeah. Because okay. you're, you need to have your contractors in line with the model type you're buying, what the requirements of it are going to be, and have your contractors lined up to make the work happen while, after the demo starts so that, that wall can, the walls and the ceiling can be opened up if it has to be. Yeah. And this is where those tech specs, those technical specifications are going to show what the requirements are of each appliance. So we're, I would talk about it all the time on the show, but um, this is another really specific one for refrigerators. Um, okay. And then let's talk a little bit about low, about um, um, low energy refrigerators and how they actually pull less than some of them do energy efficient refrigerators. Right. And so like, talk a little bit about that. Like what's different about fridges now than from 30 years ago. Well, I, I won't even go 30 years back. I'll go back five years. Uh, back five years ago, most of your energy-efficient refrigerators only pulled like six or seven amps. Amps is the amount of power that is being drawn from your panel. And so that's what you're getting charged for every time you're using it. It actually gets transferred over called watts. Um, but you were talking, you know, six amps. So if you had a six-amp refrigerator on a shared appliance circuit, which is what supports your countertop, and you ran a coffee maker and you ran a microwave, a countertop microwave at the same time, you might constantly be tripping the breaker. And that's because so much demand was being put on to that one little circuit. So your fridge is get constantly getting turned off and you're having to go out and flip the breaker in your um, sub panel. In today's fridges, um, one of the most recent ones, I was doing a job in a subdivision locally here and the refrigerator was, was only two amps, two amps of power demand to run it. So that's the change in a five-year span of technology. You go on from fridges that norm the energy-saving fridges that normally pulled six amps to fridges today, which pull two amps. And it just it's like it's incredible how all of that stuff has changed. Um, because you can share a circuit with that two-amp refrigerator. If it's an older home, it's ideal for an older home because you may not be able to go ahead and change the wiring on that wall that you're sharing with the countertop. Circuit. Right, you may literally just have a fixed amount of power coming into your house, period, right. and you don't have extra. Like, so you have to be really efficient about how you use the power in the kitchen. So the other thing—you're <laughs> still thinking. Uh, I am. I'm always thinking. <laughs> Sorry, uh, but the beautiful thing about today's code—you still have that flexibility. Older homes are always going to be a challenge. Um, I, I, it doesn't matter how, how old the home is, what year the home is, uh, you're going to have a challenge about what your available power is coming into the house and what, how the house is wired or how many little rivers were provided to power each little substation and in, in each one of your spigots in the house. Right. And that's because that figured out. Yeah. That's because back then, like all houses are not the same, right? Like an older, an actual true older house is going to have, would have when they were building that house 40 years ago, right, or 30 years ago, they were not imagining the amount of appliances and small gadgets and cooking and all the things that we do in kitchens now, like just weren't happening back then. And so they were planning the power for the way that the family lived then. And families just are different now. The things we do in kitchens are more demanding so that's why there's a fixed amount of power. And it's like how you're going to really strategically use that so that it feels like you have a new kitchen and it feels like you did a real upgrade, but you have to be really clever about how you do that. You can't just assume that you can just get more power, right? Yeah. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> I was like, are you falling asleep over there? What's going on? No, oh, ma'am. I was just listening to all the amazing things you were talking about. 
Um, okay, so that's fridges, dishwashers, and garbage disposals. Let's talk about uh, a little bit about like stoves going from, you know, some of the assumptions are that, well, if you had a cooktop there, you can just put another cooktop there. Uh, but you might be buying a cooktop that's pulling twice as much power, right? Or um, you want to go from a gas stove or an electric stove to a gas stove. So talk a little bit about the differences in power and how that's used behind a quote unquote stove or you know, like there's, you just don't assume that it's just going to work just because it's just plugging it in the wall. Like talk a little bit about that. Right. So your standard electric stove that you have pulls about 8,000 kilowatts. Um, so you have watts and then you have thousands of watts. So 8,000 kilowatts works out to, I'll do a quick calculation here for you while I'm talking about it. Um, it's going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 amps and it's going to be on a 220 or 240 volt circuit. So if you change your stove over to a gas stove, a gas stove works off of a, of a straightforward 15 amp circuit on 120 volts, but you can't use the current outlet for your bigger one because it's 240 volts. You can't even split it. It's not okay to do that. You have to have, you have to actually bring in a new circuit. Um, Sorry, I'm doing a math calculation right now. And, so and is that because it's too much power for the new? Too much power, power right? Too much power. So, so, yeah. so your eight thousand, your eight thousand kilowatt, um, or your eight thousand watt stove is thirty three amps is what the demand is on it. So, vice versa, if you have a gas stove and you're trying to go to an electric stove, and that electric stove is pulling thirty three amps, you're going to have to bring in a circuit for that that's rated at forty amps and. This is where the money gets spent, you know, because if you're doing electric, you got to bring the electric all the way across. And as I said earlier, if it's a single story home, not too big of a challenge, still a bit of a challenge, but not a big challenge. Uh, whereas if it's a two story home, you may have a lot of challenges bringing that electrical in because everything's finished and it's a two story home. So you got floor joists you got to go through and and she rocks. So this is where you got to start looking at is is the expense of bringing my power across going to be worth the value of buying this new stove? Um, on your electric stove going to gas, because you may be that person wants that new big wolf dual fuel stove, your outlet may be big enough or your power coming in from the old electric stove may be big enough to support the dual fuel side on the electric for the wolf stove, but you still need to bring a gas line in. And, yeah. if, you're, and if your home is built on a slab and it's a two-story home, Bring a gas line in can be very expensive. It can even probably, in some cases, it might even be the same cost as what it costs for you to install that dual fuel wool stove. So these are things that when you're in your planning process, you need to be considering as to getting bids to have those projects done before you even start tearing out the kitchen. Yeah, you right want well, you want to know if if you have enough power and the right kind of power to support the appliance you want. Now, not to scare everybody, right? Like a lot of people are not doing that big of an adjustment. So if someone's thinking, oh my God, like I didn't, I don't even know now if I can do my kitchen remodel. Like you're not saying like, if you already have an existing freestanding stove there and you just want to get a newer freestanding stove that looks cute and clean, like that's an easy swap, right? Like that is correct. Right. Sorry. Didn't mean to scare the crowd. Yeah, no, that's okay. So, so that's, what we're not, we're talking about like, if you're changing something dramatically from something to something else, you just want to have already talked to an electrician to make sure that they know what the new requirements are and that it's possible before you buy the appliance basically is what we're saying. Exactly. That, 
My my biggest concern, and they, and they, again, this is because I'm comfortable working with your with your customers, babe, is that you know when you and I go in to talk to them after you and them have started talking about the remodel process, uh, in most cases we'll sit down and start talking about what the appliances are they want, what the new needs are for it, and then if it ends up being something that you know is like just drastically a big change, um, and I'll use one of the jobs you and I did here locally not so long ago. The homeowner wanted to put in a dual fuel, and they were fortunate they already had a gas line coming in, and they already had the outlet behind it for their electric stove. So for them, it, was, it wasn't really a big deal. We just had to make sure that it, that it worked. Whereas another customer that you and I had worked with, they wanted to do dual fuel, but you and I had to bring in the power to support the dual fuel because they had a gas line already in place. They just didn't have the power to support the oven side of the dual fuel. Right, exactly. But we already went in and found out ahead of time, like, oh yeah, this is totally doable, right? So yeah, before they even spent the money on the new stove. Right, exactly. Um, okay, so that's ovens, uh, and now let's talk about microwaves, right? Like the difference between microwaves, and I think the little known fact that microwaves pull an enormous amount of power. Most people kind of just look at their microwave and think, oh, it's just sitting there. She's not doing very much. But actually, uh, microwaves pull a lot of power. So talk about the difference between just a regular little microwave that just sits on your countertop and maybe one that's like a built-in, right? Like the traditional microwave, like above an oven. Can you talk about the differences in those and why those sometimes need a dedicated circuit? Yeah. So most of your over-the-top of of the... um, stove microwaves the ones that are dual fan dual um dual fan with lights and then microwave uh most of those are pulling 1700 watts and 1700 watts is something that is you need to be concerned about because of the amperage demand i'm actually calculating that out right now for you uh so they pull 7 amps so in most cases uh you have to have a dedicated circuit to support that microwave going over the top and actually that's the code if you have a built-in microwave, you have to have a dedicated circuit to meet modern code for your home. Um, for countertop microwaves, they're like 1,100 watts of demand, and that's like only four amps. And so that's part of the reason why with a with a countertop, they don't require you to have a dedicated uh, circuit to support that because you're only pulling four watts of power for short bursts of time, for short periods of time, and it's just considered another countertop appliance. Uh, so the big difference is, is your microwave going to be built in or is your microwave going to be sitting on the countertop? And that's going to determine whether you have to bring in a new dedicated circuit to support the microwave or whether you can just use the ones that are already existing. Right. Okay. So just things again to think about is like all microwaves are not the same. And um, I think it's pretty interesting that they pull a lot more power than you think you do. So again, back to that little wafer light, like one four to six inch, you know, quote unquote, recess light is only 15 watts. And a microwave is a thousand watts of power that it's pulling or up to 17, 1800, right? So that's a big difference in how much power it's pulling out of the kitchen. Now it is intermittent because you're not running your your microwave all the time, but I just think that's kind of interesting. I wouldn't have thought they pull that much power. So here's, here's an example we could think of getting back to talking about our old school refrigerators that were built five years ago. If you were to take an old school refrigerator and you were to take a built-in microwave and use the two of them together, that pulls 13 amps of power. That leaves you with three amps of power 
before you're at your 80% on a 20 amp breaker. Because 20 amp breakers are supposed to be rated at 80% of their power, which is 16 amps. So you've almost completely committed all the power from one breaker for one circuit to those two items. And that's wow. where, and that's where when you're like doing your load calculations or when you're trying to figure out, you know, why breakers keep tripping in your house, this is why it's important to know how to do a load calculation because you can, in most cases, you can figure out why that breaker is tripping. And it usually ends up being because of the user putting too many appliances on one side or on one circuit, meaning they're pulling too much water out and then it's drying the water up. Yeah. Well, and I'm glad you brought up um, load calcs because we're going to, uh, we're going to do a bonus episode where, so our next episode, we're going to talk about the common like pitfalls or problems that we see, like the most common things that we see that people don't do correctly or that that it become problems, right? That's what our, our fourth episode is going to be about. And then our bonus episode is going to be where we talk about what is a load calculation? Why is that so important? And um, and some bonus things about like, you know, maybe you want to get a Tesla, maybe you want to install solar, maybe you're going to install a pool or a jacuzzi. Um, all of these things, again, are drawing power, which then affects the kitchen remodel, right? So, uh, so many electricians do not do an accurate load calculation. They just go in and start putting in outlets and putting stuff in, but they've never actually assessed how much power is coming into the house and how it's being used and what's actually available, right? So, you may end up getting partially into that process and then someone tells you, oh, you need a new subpanel, Like, you need to upgrade this and now it's another two or three or $4,000. And you weren't even expecting that. So we like, we like knowing ahead of time so we can tell a customer what they're really getting themselves into. So that's going to be our, our bonus episode where we're going to talk about like, so maybe you want a Tesla and a kitchen remodel. You need to do a load calculation. And um, Larry has been gracious enough to also offer that if some of our customers, some of our members want to pay him a small fee, he will actually walk you through how to do a load calculation in your own house. So um, he's, I've asked him to do that for some of our people and he's agreed. We think we can pull that off. So reach out to us if you are in the middle of a remodel or thinking of doing one and you want to know realistically, like actually accurately, how much power you have coming into the kitchen, what's the best safe use of that power. Um, and, and definitely if you want to buy a Tesla, like babe, how many times do we see people buy a Tesla and then they can't power their Tesla at their house because they didn't do a load calculation first. And now they have a car that they have to drive to the supermarket to plug in every single day. Out of the last 15 calls I've gotten from customers in our local area, um, 12 of them were not able to power the Tesla at their home. Yeah. So Imagine if you just bought an $80,000 car that you've been <laughs> dreaming about forever. And the big selling point is that you can charge it at your house, right? And save money on gas. So you go and spend all this money and they never tell you that you can't actually charge it at your house, right? So we have a lot of opinions about Tesla <laughs> because it's very misleading to people. Um, and if you're one of those people that's thinking of buying a Tesla, don't buy a Tesla yet. And do not believe if they just tell you that you just buy this little $400 wall charger, that that means it's going to work. That does not mean it's going to work uh, because Tesla themselves has not done a load calculation on your house. And um, so they don't know if the wall wall charger will work either. Right. And Larry, we know that most of the times it doesn't. Yeah. And it's not in, and just so that we're not like discriminating as Tesla. This is all the companies that produce electric vehicles. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's not just Tesla. It's just that Tesla was the first people to start doing this. Right. Tesla, Tesla is the one that has the high, has the highest charging options as far as amperage when you're charging the car um, out of all the companies that are out there. But all the companies that are producing electric cars are encouraged. Tesla is actually the only one that has certified electricians to do the installation of the charging systems. All the other companies out there are just willy nilly. Yeah, but even Tesla is still pretty, um, they're pretty deceptive. They do not tell people because they want people to buy their cars, right? So they don't tell people that it might be another three or $4,000 to actually run a dedicated circuit to actually power that wall charger correctly. And, or they still will sell the car even when there's like no chance in hell that there's actually enough power to charge that house and charge at the house. So I still think it's very deceptive because they don't give any indication that this might happen. And it's a complete shock to these people when they call you to install their wall charger. And you're like, I'm so sorry, but it's literally like, it's either going to be several thousand dollars is on a good side, or you're not going to ever be able to charge it at your house. And you just bought an $80,000 car. And now you have to sit in the parking lot at Safeway and charge your car every day. Yeah, for 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah. So, which kind of defeats the purpose of buying a chart of buying a Tesla, right? Um, all right, guys. Well, thanks so much for listening. I know this was a lot to take in. I know this was a lot to take in. We tried to make it as simple as we could. We may have confused some people because it's hard to listen to electrical without seeing visuals. I will post some of the visuals um, in a blog post. But just know the biggest things is that you really want to have a qualified electrician who is going to take the time to really think through and help explain to you what power you have coming in, what's available, what your real limitations are. Don't just ignore those things, right? Don't just hire a handyman who's like, oh, I can do that for $400. I can do your whole kitchen for $400. I guarantee you that guy does not know at all the stuff we're talking about right here, right? And he may put in an outlet or things that look okay on the surface, but behind the walls, they're building energy, they're building heat, they're gonna start a fire and he's not gonna be the person that's responsible for it, right? Three years later or whatever. So just that's really the, the purpose of this episode is to get you to really think about it and just take it seriously and really respect the power that's coming into your kitchen through electricity. Babe, any last words? I have a few, but I'm I'm going to refrain from sharing them until our next one. So our episode does not run long. <laughs> All right. Um, sounds good. All right, ladies. So again, remember, if you are interested, you can reach out to us, reach out to me, and I can connect you with Larry. Um, and he could virtually basically walk you through doing a load calculation on your own house to so that you kind of know what you're in for and you know what's possible. And then you could give that information to your local electrician or at the very least, it'll help you be able to have a better conversation with that person and understand. Okay. All right, guys, talk later and we'll see you in the very next episode. Thanks for having me. Great kitchen design and incredible functionality should not cost an arm and a leg. That's why I created Kitchen Remodel Rockstar, a membership group exclusive for women that's affordable, honest, and direct. For just $97 a month, We help you explore all those choices running around in your head, like how big is a granite slab and which color should I pick? Is porcelain better than stainless steel? And what will it cost? Should I buy a farmhouse sink in single or double bowl? Or maybe what type of cabinets should I buy? Should I buy custom? Should I do a reface? 
I'm really lost, right? And finally, how do I even figure out the ideal cabinet layout? Well, that and so much more is what we cover inside of KRR. It's like kitchen therapy, because let's face it, planning a kitchen remodel is stressful. So many decisions to make, it's hard to know who to trust. And that's where I come in. Look, my program has helped over 10,000 women across the country create their own kitchen system that blends high-end functionality with gorgeous design without overdrafting your checking account. So jump on in today and let's see how we can help you get your dream kitchen for less stress and money. Just like Jessica, quote, I can't believe how much I learned already. This was worth the cost and it's been two days. I am so excited to start exploring countertop options now. My anxiety is completely gone. Thank you, thank you for this group. So hey, I really want to add your story one day and I hope you join because this is a safe and affordable place for women just like you to explore what they want to create in their dream kitchen and get straightforward answers in real time. Just think, for $97, there's no more waiting or wondering if you're making the right decision. Now you will feel confident in every single choice and know that you have created the best dream kitchen you can for you. I hope to see you inside the club today. Go over to krr.com to sign up. That's kitchenremodelrockstar.com today.